Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. With me, I'll be reading out of Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days it occurred that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman Empire should be registered. This was the first enrollment, and it was made when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all the people were going to be registered, each to his own city or town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was about to become a mother. And while they were there, the time came for her delivery. And she gave birth to her son, her firstborn, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Father, and as Lisa prayed, we pray that once again your word would go forth and by your Holy Spirit do that that only your word can do, and that is change us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. In Red Heart's story, The Luck of Roaring Camp, we are given this true story. Roaring Camp was supposed to be, according to the story, the meanest, toughest mining town in all of the West. It had more murders and thefts than all the other towns combined. It was a terrible place, inhabited entirely by men and one woman. Her name was Cherokee Sal. Then, tragically, she died while giving birth to a baby. Well, these hard men took the baby and put her in a box with some old rags under her. But when they looked at her, they decided that that wasn't right. So one of the men went 80 miles to buy a rosewood cradle. He brought it back, and they put the rags and the baby in the cradle, but the rags didn't look right there. So they sent another other number to Sacramento, and he came back with some beautiful lace and silk blankets. And then they put the baby wrapped around with all those blankets in the cradle. It looked fine until someone happened to notice that the floor was so filthy. So these rough men got down on their hands and knees, and with their roughed and calloused hands, they scrubbed that floor until it was spotless. Of course, what that did was to make the walls and the ceiling and the dirty windows without curtains look absolutely terrible. So they washed down the walls and the ceiling. They even put curtains on the windows. And now things were beginning to look as they thought things should look. But of course, now they had to give up all their fighting because the babies slept a lot and babies can't sleep during a drunken brawl. So the whole temperature of Roaring Camp seemed to go down. They used to take her out and set her by the entrance to the mine, the rosewood cradle, so they could keep an eye on her. Then somebody noticed what a dirty place the mine was. So they planted flowers and made a little garden there. It was actually quite beautiful. And they would bring her stones and shiny little things from the mines that they would find for her to play with. But then when they put their hands down next to her, their hands looked so dirty. Pretty soon the general store there was all sold out out of soap and shaving cream and perfume, all because of that one baby. 
Those miners accepted that baby for the gift that it was. And that baby changed everything. In direct contrast to that, when Christ came as a baby, he was not accepted as God's gift that he truly was. But instead, he was born to be rejected by the majority of those that he came to save. We know this from, first John, from John 1, 9, which reads, He was the true light that was coming into the world that enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not accept him. Now what's even more amazing, if you will allow me just a little bit of latitude, is that Jesus, in a sense, was rejected even while he was in his mother's womb. The scripture I'd like to cover once again is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, which I will read again. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The last verse is actually all that I'm going to cover. Really, it's just the last phrase of that verse, which we will be looking at, which tells us there was no room for them in the end. Even in Mary's womb, Jesus is rejected. It's a very important part of what the Bible teaches about Christmas, and it's seldom brought out and looked at in the undiluted way that I want to look at it this morning, because it seems like such a downer, even though it isn't. That is, the Christmas story tells us that Jesus Christ came to be rejected. First of all, he was rejected because he did not meet the world's standards for a Messiah. The first reason he was rejected is because he wasn't, in their eyes, the right kind of person. He just didn't look like a Messiah. He didn't act like the Messiah that they wanted to vanquish Rome. And even the manger tells us that he came from the wrong side of the tracks. When you get to the part where he is presented for circumcision, the offering that Joseph and Mary gave was two pigeons. That was the offering that the Jewish law offered up for the very poorest of all people, which means that Mary and Joseph were poor. We also know that Jesus was a carpenter, and so Jesus did not look like what the world would say a leader and a Messiah should be. He was just too ordinary to be a Messiah in their minds. And yet we know he was anything but ordinary. A Christian is somebody who says, I'm never going to be fooled in that way again. I was fooled at first by the ordinariness. 
William Lane wrote a commentary on Mark, and he makes a commentary on Mark 6, where all the hometown people reject Jesus as the Messiah. William Lane says, they cannot pierce the veil of ordinariness that surrounded him. He was too ordinary. He wasn't what they expected. They got offended. They looked on the outside and not on the inside. How does the song go? Failed, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Now, of course, someday that veil is going to come off. But right now, he is veiled to the majority of the world today whose eyes are blinded, it says, by the God of this world. If we don't understand rejection and why he was rejected, that he was rejected and the implications for us, we really don't understand Christmas. Everything about this chapter in Luke is foreshadowing. Luke is not simply a reporter, though he's certainly telling us accurate things about how Jesus was born. He's also a teacher, and he's showing us that Jesus Christ came to be rejected. So on the one hand, you have this very famous phrase that I mentioned. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. No room. Rejected. Banned. Excluded. This was the world that Jesus was about to enter into. Now when people read that, they shake their heads and cluck their tongues at the callousness of sending a pregnant woman into a filthy barn to give birth. So why does Luke bring that out? Because Jesus is shut out. Here Jesus at the very beginning shut out, doors barred, manger, out in the cold, no room. Here when Joseph gets to Bethlehem, he doesn't have the money or even the clout or connection to get a room. He can't even get a roof and four walls and a door to keep out the night while his wife is having a baby. She has the baby in a stable and puts Jesus in a feed trough and not a rosewood crib. And I like to bring out this morning that it's really wrong for us to romanticize this. To have all the smiling cows and the things around the manger with wonderful indirect lighting and everybody looking so angelic. It's wrong to do that. It's incorrect. The whole point of this is that it was brutal. The nativity is brutality. There's no room. He's poor. They don't have a place to stay. The Son of God is lying. They're surrounded by animal waste. He's rejected. You know, really, I don't think rejected is a strong enough term. Let's look at the one that the prophet Isaiah ascribes to the Lord. This is Isaiah 53.3. Concerning Jesus, it says, He was despised and abandoned by men 
a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we had no regard for him. Despised. Now that's a strong word. Jesus was not only not tolerated or indulged, he was despised. He was despised and rejected for the sake of humanity. This is the pattern. In the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of Jesus' life, you'll see it here in its seed form. This is how he's going to save us. This is what he came into the world to do. He was rejected by the world. He doesn't come as a general. He doesn't come as a philosopher or a professor. He doesn't come into a palace. He comes into a stable. William Billings, the great American composer, has a great Christmas hymn, and there's one line that goes like this. Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God, extended on the straw. Jesus came knowing he would be rejected, and knowing that he was going to intimidate people because the truth would threaten them. But he came anyway, because of the substitutionary nature of his work. In a nutshell, his rejection is our acceptance. He just didn't come to be rejected as an example. He came to be rejected as a savior. Do we see this? His rejection means our acceptance. He was rejected for our transgressions. He was our substitute. That means his rejection has led to our acceptance. God accepts us because he was rejected. It's been called the great exchange. Therefore, Jesus came the first time to be rejected, not to be accepted, but to be destroyed and killed instead of being crowned. The first time, he came not to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Why? Because all of us are a sinful mess. Martin Luther put it perfectly when he said that human nature is incurvetus in se, which is a Latin phrase that means curved in on itself. That means we are so radically self-centered and self-absorbed that we don't even know how self-centered we really are. We won't even admit how selfish we truly are. Thankfully, he came to take our rejection we deserve for our self-centeredness, for our wrongdoing, for our sin, so that someday he can return and end evil without ending us. Now you know why this has to be a fact. Now you know why Luke is insisting on this. Buddha says, if you seek enlightenment, you can get it. Muhammad says, if you really seek submission, you can get it. In fact, the word Islam means submission. Now, 
Buddha and Muhammad do not agree on how to find salvation because Buddha sees salvation as enlightenment and Muhammad sees salvation as submission to the will of God as in obedience. But in spite of that, they do agree on one thing. And that is that you in yourself can find salvation. You can seek it and procure it and acquire it if you really want to do it. But that's not what Christianity says. Christianity says that the darkness in our hearts is far too great. We will never fix it. Therefore, Jesus had to come, not to call the obedience into war against the disobedient ones, not to say, those of you who are good, come to me, flock to my banner, and we'll deal with the rest of the bad people. No, the darkness resides in each and every one of us. Therefore, Jesus says, you can't save yourself. I didn't come to show you how to get saved. I've come to save you. I've come to do what you should have done, but can't. I've come to take the penalty of your sins. You couldn't do anything to get saved, and you certainly can't do anything to stay saved. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. It's a marriage covenant from God himself. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. And it's a covenant that God, who cannot lie, has vowed to keep. Maybe you're thinking, but what about all those times that I blow it? Is it possible for God to ask for a divorce? Well, picture this. A bride and her groom dashing out of the church through the showers of rice and into the limo, all aglow with the light of love from the vows they had just taken. But in the back seat of the car, en route to the reception, they embrace and kiss. Then the groom announces that he has something to say. He begins. Now you realize, my dear, that as far as I'm concerned, we really can't say we're married because I don't know as of yet what kind of wife you're going to turn out to be. Now I hope for the best, of course, and I will help you any way that I can, but only at the end of our lives will I be able to tell if you've lived up to my expectations. If you have, then and only then will I agree that we truly got married today. But if you don't, as far as I'm concerned, we were never married at all. After all, how can I call you my wife if you fail to be a wife to me? Under such circumstances, it will not be a happy honeymoon, if there's one at all. You see, a wife cannot be a wife if her whole existence is based on the conditional covenant of her love for or her husband. And she's under constant scrutiny from her groom. She will certainly sometimes fail. And so the groom has completely misunderstood the power of the marriage to transform the beloved. What am I saying? The couple that tied the knot only 60 minutes ago is every bit as married as the couple celebrating their 60th anniversary. Whatever happens in the course of the marriage does not affect the marriedness of those two people. Okay? In the same way then, how can we be expected 
to love and trust a God if he is always watching us like a hawk, hoping that we will fail? No. Right standing with God isn't something that we have to generate from within ourselves. Right standing with God, the Bible says, is a free gift and a covenant that God has promised to keep. And that's what helps us to grow, to trust, to love, and to obey God. It's because we are saved, not to be saved. So here's what I want us to take away from this this morning. For the vast majority of the human race, nothing has changed. There is still no room for Christ in the lives of people throughout the history of mankind. And maybe, in that sense, we can identify with Jesus. Maybe you have felt the sting of rejection in your own life. Let's be honest. This is a hard world that we have entered into. One man I read recalls the childhood pain of always being chosen last for the baseball team. He wrote, The captains are down to their last grudging choices. They picked a slow kid for the catcher and a fat kid to stick out in right field where nobody ever hits. Then they choose the last ones two at a time by saying, You and you, because it makes no difference. And then there are the remaining kids the scrubs, the excess, and they deal with us as if we are handicaps. They say, if I take him, then you got to take him. Sometimes I would go as high as six, but usually lower. But just once, I like Daryl to pick me first and say, him, I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, you come on. Ends by saying, but I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. That's sad, isn't it? Rejected. So here at the beginning of the beginning, we see the pattern. He's put into a rough wooden feed trough, and later he will be nailed to a wooden cross. Here he's rejected by the innkeeper. Later the whole population will cry, crucify him. Here he's wrapped in old cloths, but then he'll be stripped naked, and his last possession, the garment that he wore, will be sold. And he'll be killed. Here, as it were, he is rejected by the world. But on the cross, he's even rejected by his father. Why? He has to get what we deserve for us to be saved. That's the reason his life is summed up in that great passage that I referred to earlier in Isaiah 53. It was always looking forward to his life when it says... He was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. We held him in low esteem, but he took our pain and he bore our suffering. But we observed him as being punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now here's the key. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ was rejected so that you and I this morning can be accepted. There was no room for him so you and I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now what does that mean? 
Well, in conclusion, let me just say that it means there is hope. Believe in him and there is hope. Because he was rejected, we are accepted. Did you ever think about the fact that you are so valuable to God that he chose you early and with boundless joy and enthusiasm? How do I know that? I think the best passage that covers this is found in Ephesians chapter 1. I want these words to wash over you this morning. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has, and this is the phrase I want to leave you with, accepted us in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. That's the true meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. Here's the gospel. You're far more sinful than you ever dared to believe, and you're far more loved than you ever dared to hope. Let us pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you did come down here and that you were treated as we deserved. The only righteous man who ever lived bore our sins so that we could forever be part of who you are. I pray, Father, you know the hearts of everyone in here. You know the hearts of the people that will see this online. Drive this truth into each one of us and let us respond as we need to for your glory. We ask these things in our soon coming King's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.